Let's pray together. As we pray, I'd like to introduce our prayer or make a preamble to our prayer, I suppose, from Psalm 113. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Father, we come to you, almighty, sovereign God, and bow before you. And Lord, confess that without you, we have no hope. Without you, we have no strength. Without you, we have no purpose. And so, Lord, we look to you to fill us with your truth and your presence, to anoint us with your spirit, to move upon us today according to your divine plan. Teach us to be people who walk in obedience, people who emanate the very presence of Christ wherever we go. Father, I pray that you will work in our hearts to ferret out those issues <coughs> that need your transforming power. Lord, we are weak. We are subject to sin and to the issues of this world. And so we trust you to do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. Teach us to be people of prayer, to be people who care for one another and for those around us who need you. Father, we just commit this class time to you and we commit this this whole campus to you and what you will do this morning in services and in time of prayer. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Nearing the end of his life, Joshua gathered his people to exhort them to live in obedience after he was gone. Some of us who, well, I, I, you know, all of us who are parents or who are grandparents may feel like we're, we're ready to go meet the Lord, but in some ways we're not because we'd like to be here to pray for our kids and our grandkids and to minister to them in whatever way we can. I remember when my wife's father died. He, he died actually fairly young for the strength of his body, but he had picked up uh, a cancer and, and as a result he died. But one of his greatest longings was to see that all of his grandchildren came to know the Lord. And the greatest feeling that most of us uh, who, who loved him were concerned with was the fact that we'd be losing someone who was a stalwart uh, man of God and who prayed and, and ministered to his children and his grandchildren constantly. And, and to see him go was, from our point of view, of course, uh, a great loss. Uh, God knows what he's doing, of course, and we have to trust in that. But I, I feel that many way that's the way Joshua felt. Uh, he was going to have to go. He was nearing 110 years of age, but he was longing for the people he would be leaving behind. And he wouldn't be here anymore to shepherd them. So he was committing them to the shepherd of their soul. And, and he wanted them to continue walking faithfully with him, with, with God, as they had during the 10 years or so that he had led Israel. Now, I believe that this is, of course, chapter 23, which we've already studied through in Joshua. I, I believe that he delivered this portion of his farewell address in front of the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was the backdrop for, for his 
words to, to his people and his challenge. And, and you remember one of the things we focused on in that particular passage was that he told the people of Israel that they needed to cling to the Lord, stick like glue, to, to be as close to the Lord as your shadow is to you, and not allow the surrounding pagan peoples to entice them into idolatry. He warned them that if they turned their backs on the Lord, that God would be forced to do to them what he had done to the Canaanites, and that is drive them out of the land. My wife has just finished reading another one of the books that are on um, deal with the life of Anne Frank. And most of you are familiar with Anne Frank. And what impressed her, and she was telling me yesterday about the uh, fact is that Anne Frank makes these very mature statements for a 15-year-old, 14 or 15-year-old, but it, it shows no teaching. It shows no understanding of spiritual things whatsoever. Obviously, her parents were not even what you would call true, you know, religious Jews. And she didn't even have any real Jewish understanding. And as I thought about that, and I thought about the whole Holocaust, you know, it was, it was such a tragedy. It's a double tragedy knowing that almost all those Jews did not have any true faith in Jesus Christ or the living God. You know, they, they had a distorted faith or, or no faith at all. They were being persecuted and destroyed because of their ethnic background. And yet, of course, when they died, unless they had somehow come to an understanding of who Jesus Christ was, they did not pass into God's presence. And so the tragedy is doubled uh, by that. And so Joshua is saying to the people, if, if you turn your back on God, he will throw you out of the land, chase you out just as he chased out the Canaanites. And of course, we know that for 2,000 years, uh, the nation of Israel was chased out of the land. And it was only in 1948 that they regained statehood over there in the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. And even then, of course, this is not what you call a religious state. But God is, is doing something in the end times, uh, regardless of, you know, what it might look like in many ways. Sometime later, and we don't know the time frame between chapter 23 and chapter 24 of Joshua, probably it's a matter of weeks, maybe months, uh, the, the venue is moved from Shechem north to, I, I'm sorry, from Shiloh north to Shechem. And, and there at Shechem, Joshua delivers the second half, part two, of his farewell address. And last time, that's where we ended. We, we began looking at that, and I noted the fact that why Shechem? Why didn't he continue to uh, give his entire address there at Shiloh? Well, we don't know why he didn't complete it at Shiloh, but God obviously moved him to go up to Shechem. And, and Shechem was a place that I highlighted was important in the history of Israel because it was at Shechem that, Israel, uh, that Abraham, Bert built <laughs> Abraham built the first altar to the Lord God in Canaan at Shechem. And secondly, we noted that it was where Jacob bought a piece of land. It was where Joseph was buried. It was where Jacob built an altar to El, the God of Israel. And of course, was where Joseph, Joseph himself, just 10 years before, had built an altar to the Lord and had carved on two large stones the law of the Lord. And so I believe that it is there with those two large stones as backdrop 
the word written on the stones that he gave the final portion of his farewell sermon. So let's turn to Joshua 24 and read these first 13 verses. And if you will, because I will be highlighting this as we go through, if you will take note of how many times the word I is used, referring to God. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron. I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst. And afterwards I brought you out. And I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. But when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness for a long time. Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who lived beyond the Jordan, and they fought with you. And I gave them into your hands. And you took possession of their land when I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam. So he had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. And you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Thus I gave them into your hand. Then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by your sword or your bow. And I gave you a land on which you have not labored, and cities which you have not built, and you have lived in them. You are eating of, the, of vineyards and olive groves, which you did not plant. So all the leaders of Israel are gathered at Shechem. Between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And Joshua spoke to them with prophetic authority. You'll notice the words are highlighted. Thus says the Lord. And that's why through the words that Joshua now preaches or gives to them, you keep hearing, I this, I that, I the other. And he's not talking about Joshua. He's talking about God because he is the voice of God here to his people. From the mouth of Joshua came the words of the Lord, the God of Israel. And what he did was begin with Abraham and recount the history of Israel up to the time of the conquest and settlement of Canaan. And what was the purpose of this recitation? The purpose of this recitation was to inspire faith and obedience. Faith and obedience. God 
had proven himself trustworthy. God had proven himself faithful to his promises. Therefore, the Israelites, as a people and as individuals, had every reason to permanently commit themselves to God. God has purposely pre preserved the record of his dealing with Israel through the hundreds of years, which we largely call the Old Testament. And he has done this so that we too might be confirmed in our faith as we read the record of what God did for his people century after century. When we trust in God, the God of the Bible, we are not taking an existential leap in the dark, casting ourselves out there, hoping that some kind of a benevolent being will catch us. We're not trusting in a mystery God who can only be understood if you somehow buy into the secret knowledge that's connected with knowing this God, you know, a la the Gnostics and others. We're placing our trust in the God of history. Not a hidden God, but an open God who's revealed himself through the pages of Scripture and through the history of the church for over 4,000 years. I mean, we have a 4,000-year historical record of God dealing with men and women. God of the Bible. And what do we discover from that? First of all, we discover that he exists. But more than that, we discover his character. We, we discover his nature, his attributes, his power, his mercy, his love. And we gain all of this through looking at the history of Israel and the last 2,000 years of the history of the church. That's where we are so blessed. Because if you move into Hinduism, for example, you've got so many million gods that you can't possibly figure them out. If you move, to, move into Buddhism, and there isn't any real god at all. You, know? you move into Islam and you have a god you can't know because he's way out there somewhere and he's not really down here you know, doing anything with people except you know, he's got this fatalistic plan in action and you just fall into the slot and, and do your you know, genuflections you know, and all the things you're supposed to do and it all work out. That's not the kind of God we have. We have a personal God. A God who knows our thoughts before we even think them. Now that could be scary, you know. But he loves us, knowing that we're going to think some thoughts that aren't so good. And maybe even say some things that are not so glorifying to him. Throughout this passage, we find overwhelming emphasis upon what God did. What God did. None of the events that, that we read about there were fortuitous. Oh, they just accidentally happened, just chance encounters. No, they were all God-ordained. And through Joshua, God kept saying, look what I did. I took, I gave, I brought, I delivered, I sent. On and on, all through that passage, God did these things. God was reminding them that it is he who is in constant control. He is not only in control of the affairs of your life and my life and the lives of all of his people, but he's in charge of the affairs of this world. And he allows things to happen which we can view and the world views as some kind of tragedy. But he has a purpose in it because the greatest tragedy that can happen is for a soul to pass into eternal darkness. That is the greatest tragedy in the whole world. 
So for somebody to lose their home, for somebody to lose their job, for somebody to have a sickness, these are minor compared to that. And God will often allow those other things to happen because, as you and I well know, sometimes you have to hit the wall before we finally pay attention to God. You know, if things are too easy, who needs God? Now, that's the problem we have in the United States of America, which I think is going to change. It is for most people, they don't need God because they have the food they need, they have the clothes they need, they have all house, everything. I mean, they have it in abundance. But we have, <laughs> there's a film strip that I used to use in one of my classes at the college, which was dealing with U.S. history. And one of the little phrases that always stuck with me, and because the way it was worded, the person who, they shows a picture and talking about the abundance here in America, and, and, the, and the narrator says, and, and food just gurgles across the land, you know. Uh, we, we live in such um, abundance, such abundance. And I think God holds us responsible for that abundance. You know, how do we use it? How, how do we, are we thankful? Uh, are, you know, are we out of our abundance, therefore generous to those that don't have this abundance? There was a person who used to be a part of this class years ago who said on more than one occasion, why, why are we concerned about missionaries and, and overseas work when there's so much to do here? You know, and that kind of thought just comes to me. I mean, we have a, yeah, there's a lot to do here, but we have an abundance of it here. I mean, you have to try to avoid the gospel in much of our society to not hear it because it's on the radio, it's on TV, it's in literature, it's on churches and, and all of this. Not to say you can't live in the society without hearing the truth. You can. But if you live in, in, in central Nepal, or, or if you live uh, you know, on the, in one of the coastal villages of New Guinea, what are your chances of hearing the gospel? They are zero unless a missionary is sent to carry the word there. And that's why we, we are interested and concerned about that. Uh, I forget who it was that said it. Maybe you remember, uh, Len. But someone said that, why should anyone hear the gospel twice before others have heard it at least once? Well, I, I don't know, you know whether that is, should be considered a law or anything, but, but it's, a, it's an interesting observation. God may allow, or as we see so often in Scripture, God may command His people to take part in His plans. But God's plans are fulfilled by His power, not by our talents or our abilities or anything else, not in our strength. How often do we need to be reminded that we don't do God's work for Him? He does His work through us. And that needs to be constantly remembered because, as you and I all know, how often is it that some great leader of the church has a terrible fall? And why does the person have a fall? The root of that fall is pride. The root of the fall is pride. Whatever is the actual event, whether it's a sexual liaison or a money thing, whatever it is, the root of it is pride. To believe that they have created this spiritual empire and therefore they somehow have the power to do things that others can't do because God has, I mean, because they're, they're so important to God. And so, you know, if they steal a little bit of the money here, it's not stealing, you know, it, it's just using a little bit of the money more than normal or having a little affair on the side, I mean, you know, it's to be expected. I mean, after all, it, it's a perk. Notice how God says, I took, I gave, I sent, I did it. 
I did it. I brought Abraham here. I gave him Isaac. I gave Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. I gave Jacob the 12 sons, and you are descended from those 12 sons. It wasn't that Abraham was such a prolific guy. You know, none of it. I mean, one of the things you see, oh, well, I'll be emphasizing it later so I won't jump ahead of myself. In this passage, we have single verses that cover decades or centuries of time. For example, if you, if you look at verse 4 where it says, And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. We're talking about a total framework there of about two centuries. And yet that whole two-century period is infused by the phrase, I gave. Yahweh gave Jacob and Esau to Isaac. And Yahweh gave Esau Mount Seir. So how did Esau get Mount Seir? God gave it to him. How did Isaac get twin sons? God gave them to him. It wasn't Isaac's doing on his own. And then you look at verse 2, when Joshua says, uh, thus says the Lord to the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, meaning the Euphrates, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Now what is that verse covering? That verse is covering nearly 2,000 years of history in just one little verse. Because what that verse is saying is you're backing up from Abraham to Terah and then back through his ancestors, really all the way back to the 11th chapter of Genesis is what it's saying. Because the descendants came through Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia has been discovered to be the uh, cradle of all human civilization. Even though civilization can date back in Egypt to 3800 BC, and, and civilization can date back to 25, 2700 BC in the Indus River Valley and can date back to maybe 2500 BC over in the Yellow River Valley in China. Civilization dates back to before 4000 BC in Mesopotamia. And it's through Mesopotamia that this lineage came that produced Abraham. And so their roots are back through the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley. And what were those people in the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley? They were pagans. They were idolaters. They served numerous gods. And, and you go all the way back there and read about Nimrod, who created these, built these towns. And Nimrod was a man who opposed God. And, of course, he himself even became later deified. And many gods arose, gods to replace the true God. So you replace the true God with these other false gods. And so he is saying there, you came out of that lineage. And even your Ab Abraham's father himself worshipped idols. <coughs> so that was Abraham's background. But God gave Ab Abraham ears to hear the true voice of God. And the scripture says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him, reckoned to him as righteousness. The bulk of this passage, however, from verse 5 through verse 13, deals with events that had occurred during Joshua's lifetime. In those nine verses, there are 12 specific statements as to what God did, and I highlighted them, right? Verse 5, I sent. Verse 6, I brought. And on down through that whole passage, I, Yahweh, did this. 
So what we have is the identification of who and the verb, what they did or what he did. And you know, we have brought, sent, destroyed, delivered, gave. God did all these things. He's an active God on behalf of his people. These statements highlight a truth about God that is so important. A truth about God that is unlike any other, quote, God in history, and that is the imminence of God. I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C. Imminence means presence of God personally here on earth with his people. Unlike other gods who are either unknowable or so transcendent as is Allah that you, you can't really know anything about Allah. But you can know the character of the God of Israel because he was in the midst of his people. He was the one who carried them across the Red Sea. He spoke with them at Mount Sinai. He is with them with the tabernacle and then with the temple. He, had, he, he appeared in a fiery cloud and uh, demonstrated his presence very really to the people. I mean, sensuously demonstrate so they could see and hear and smell and feel, you know. When, when Sinai quaked, they could feel it, you know. This, and they could see the horrendous firestorm on the top of the mountain into which Moses went. So through the eye gate, the ear gate, and all the other senses, they knew that God was real, imminent, here, active amongst his people. From the record that we find in Genesis chapter 3 where we discover that God walks with Adam and Eve, walked with Adam and Eve, all the way to the end of the Old Testament in Malachi where he promises to send the Messiah. What we discover is that the Old Testament constantly illustrates the direct action of God in the lives of his people. That is a very important theme that God is constantly active in the, uh, in the lives of his people. He doesn't just toss us out there and say, well, Johnny, go to it. I've shown you what to do. Now go do it and I'll watch you and see if you can do it. No, no. He's here to enable us to do it. Paul makes a wonderful statement in, when he was in uh, Athens. Let me just turn to it in the 17th chapter of Acts. This is his famous sermon concerning the unknown God, which he preached on the Areopagus, translated in the King James Version as Mars Hill. And in Acts 17, verse 24 and following, he says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life to all and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. He's here, he's not far, for in him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Of course, they're poets, the Greek poets. We're talking about the offspring of possibly Jupiter or, you know, offspring of, of the prime mover, as Aristotle would call him. 
But he's taking that, say, this is a true statement. We are his offspring in that God created us all. But you need to come to a personal knowledge, he said, of this God who's unknown to you because he's right here. He lives amongst us. Of course, what's wonderful about the New Testament is Paul teaches us that we are the very temple of his spirit. He's moved from the tabernacle into the hearts of his people. And we are, in effect, his tabernacle. Well, let's read on in Joshua, because these are probably the two most prominent verses in all of the book of Joshua. Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 24. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. Makes no difference. Take your pick. Who cares? But as for me and for my house, we will serve the Lord. This passage gives the ultimate challenge that comes before all people. And it represents a choice that is made not only for this life, but a choice that is for all eternity. Now, of course, many people have tried to negate that choice by claiming that, well, we're reincarnated, you know. We all come back as something else later on or somebody else. Well, that is a leap in the dark, you know, to believe that. Uh, there is absolutely no inkling of proof or support for that idea at all. I mean, to, to, to believe that is just to jump off a cliff not knowing that there's anything down there whatsoever. At least we place our faith in the historical record of what God has done and has been seen and demonstrated for 4,000 years. There are others, of course, who have invented things like purgatory so that, you know, if you don't quite make it in this life, you can kind of get purged away so you can come up there. I mean, you know, that's a great safety net. It would be great if it weren't for the fact that there is no biblical support for the idea whatsoever. The scripture is really clear. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that is judgment. Joshua has just recounted for his people there what God had done for Israel over the previous 700 years, from Abraham down to his time. Then, after a brief rehearsal of God's faithfulness, he says, now, therefore, <laughs> since all of this is true, fear the Lord and serve Him. That is the only logical choice here, he is saying to the people. They were challenged to place their faith wholly in the Lord and to obey His commands. And, and what, what he says there is they were to serve the Lord in sincerity. The, the Hebrew word there can be translated completely, blamelessly, fully, without blemish. Or we could just use the all-encompassing word wholeheartedly. I mean, to us, at least to me, if I say wholehearted, that means I'm giving my whole being into this. And then he said they were to serve him in truth or faithfulness or consistently is a way of looking at it today. We are to serve the Lord wholeheartedly and consistently. Now think about that for a minute. K 
can you or I serve the Lord wholeheartedly and consistently in our own strength? I can't even serve the Lord consistently in my own strength for five minutes. Years ago, um, an author, I think it was um, Lewis uh, Spitz uh, from Stanford, um, talked about what is known as the, the length of time that you and I can be conscious of, of, of time. And he says it's been studied that we can actually maintain a consciousness of a given moment for about three and a half seconds. And then poof, we're off into the next thing. <laughs> So, can we even maintain a sincerity of faith for three and a half seconds? Well, maybe. <laughs> but in our own strength? No. We can be wholehearted and consistent in our commitment to Him, only in His strength. In order to make this happen for Israel here, He said to them that you've got to put away the gods of the past and of the present. He said, you have to put away the gods that came down through our ancestors from Mesopotamia. You cannot serve those gods anymore. He said on top of that, you cannot even serve the gods which surrounded you for 400 years when you were in Egypt. Now, you know, when I was trying to think about that this morning. If I were one of the Israelites living in Egypt for those 400 years when they were in slavery, there was no taber tabernacle, there was no temple, there was no priesthood, there was no written word, Moses hadn't even been born yet. I was to serve the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, totally immersed in the sensuous, powerful vibrations of the pagan gods of the Egyptians, which they worshipped with grandeur and all things related to the sensibilities, would have been tough, very tough, to have not fallen into that snare. It could only have been by the power of God. And of course, as you look at Israel, as they come out of, uh, out of Egypt, cross the Red Sea into the Sinai, they're a pretty poor bunch, really. I think most of them are still mostly infused with, with Egyptian paganism. And it really took the Mount Sinai experience before they, really before they came to realize this is the true and the living God. Even though we don't see him in any form, there he is. He's shaking the mountain. And, and down from the mountain came Moses and his face was aglow. You know, and, and he proclaimed the word. And God's Spirit made the word burn into the hearts of the people. The word of God just bounces off hearts unless God burns it in. And then they also had to give up the Canaanite gods, the gods they had experienced in the invasion, the gods of the people who were still living inside of Israel because they didn't kick them out, and, and the peoples that were all around. Immediately north of what is today Israel, is a country called Lebanon. Now, Lebanon, in the time we're talking about, you move back to that time period, and it was occupied by people known as the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians were a horribly pagan people, and their paganism was so degraded that, I mean, they, they would even burn their children to gods. You know, can you imagine taking your baby and tossing him into the fiery hands of this ugly god to, to, to pacify this god? I mean, it's frightening to think about. And, and that was what was around them. And they had to put away all of that, reject it, and they had to serve the living and the true God. Here we have another affirmation of the truth that God will not share worship and devotion. He will not share it. He alone is God. He alone is worthy of worship. 
any attempt to worship Yahweh and another God is to deny that God is God alone. Isaiah chapter 44. In Isaiah 44, the Lord says this at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God besides me. And who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation, let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock I know of none? <laughs> the omniscient God says, I know of none, which means there is none. Joshua made it very clear that the Israelites not only could choose, but that they must choose whom they would worship. If they found the wholehearted, consistent service of God to be undesirable, then they had to choose another God. They couldn't sit on the fence. And that is one of the biggest problems in America today. Many people feel that they're living a good enough life. You know, they didn't take their neighbor's wife. They, they didn't shoot their rebellious son. You know, therefore, they are probably good enough to face God. They're going to sit on the fence. They're, they're going to play the agnostic role. Well, I don't really know. Therefore, I should be okay. You know, where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise. But one cannot sit on the fence. Through Joshua, God said, Choose you this day whom you will serve. And of course, that reminded me when I read that of the words of Elijah. And let me end with that this morning. You don't need to turn there if you don't wish. But in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel. And if you ever go to Israel, be sure you go to Mount Carmel because you'll stand there in the shadow of, of Elijah's statue. He's standing there with his big sword in his hand. And Elijah, of course, went up there to do battle, spiritual battle, and uh, with, with the uh, priests of Baal on the top of the mountain. And after Elijah demonstrated, or is in the process at least, of allowing God to demonstrate his reality. Elijah, in verse 21, came near to all the people and he said, How long will you hesitate? Will you limp? Will you just kind of be milly mouth in the middle here between two opinions? If God is, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. People didn't answer him a word. They were scared to death, of course. They didn't want to choose at that point. But we can't claim to follow God and also follow the world. Can't do it. But that's what they were trying to do. And, Joshua, and, and, and Elijah said, choose. Get off the fence. Follow the Lord or follow Baal. Don't try to do both. There's a word that we hardly ever see or use called henontheism, which is a word that means that you, you worship lots of gods. One God may be more important to you, but, but you know, you're hedging your bets, so you include lots of other gods, too. It's kind of like Charles, Prince of Wales, you know. 
head of, will be if he ever becomes king, head of the church. But, you know, Islam has its points and Buddhism has its points and Hinduism has its points. You know, we've we, we got to be sure that we keep it all open here. Right. Well, next week I want to focus on specifically the idea of the children of God, the descendants of Abraham, and what this really means to Israel as they're standing there before Joshua that day and being told to choose. What does that mean to be a descendant of Abraham?